psalm for today. It's a message which applies to all of us, but I would particularly ask those of you who are men to think carefully about what we study together in this mighty psalm. Praise the Lord. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His descendants will be mighty on earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light arises in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious and compassionate and righteous. It is well with the man who is gracious and lends. He will maintain his cause in judgment. For he will never be shaken. The righteous will be remembered forever. And let me pause here just a moment. Robert Murray McShane, who is considered one of the greatest preachers in the history of Scotland, he died at the age of 29, said this. He said, live in such a way that when you are dead, you will be missed. He did not have in mind the idea of getting people so dependent upon you that they will miss you for that reason. But what he was really saying is, live a righteous life, because the life which is lived in righteousness will indeed be the life which will be missed. That's something that all of us should aspire to in the life that God has given us to live. Now, verse 7, he will not fear evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is upheld. He will not fear until he looks with satisfaction on his adversaries. He is given freely to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted in honor. The wicked will see it and be vexed. He will gnash his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked will perish. Now let me invite you to return to verse 1. Praise the Lord. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord. What does it mean to fear the Lord? There are two main ideas conveyed in this concept of fearing the Lord. The first idea is the idea of reverence for or worship of. The person who really fears the Lord is a person who worships the Lord freely and fully. In addition to that, true worship is not something which we typically think of it as being. We think of worship as gathering together like this, singing songs of praise and thanksgiving to the Lord, listening to the word of the Lord, offering prayer to the Lord. That is an element of worship. However, worship in its most basic sense is expressed in obedience to the Lord. Therefore, the psalmist writes in the next line, who greatly delights in his commandments. You probably are aware of the fact that Hebrew poetry did not have rhyme like English poetry has. However, there is a certain degree of parallelism that shows us what the writer has in mind. For instance, in this particular verse, the author says, How blessed is the man who fears the Lord. And then he reiterates that or defines what fearing the Lord is in the next statement where he said, His delight is in his commandments. He greatly delights in his commandments. Truth be told... There probably aren't a lot of us who even delight a little bit in the commandments of the Lord. But the person who fears the Lord is the person who greatly delights in the commandments of the Lord. Now let me explore that word delights for just a moment. The word translated delights is used among other places in the Old Testament in Esther chapter 2 verse 14. The context is that King Xerxes, the king of the Medo-Persian Empire, has a harem. And if he desires to have one of the members of his harem to come to him, he does it only because he has great delight in her. 
The idea is that he experiences great emotional delight in the one whom he asks to come to be with him. In the case of the book of Esther, it was Esther whom he greatly delighted in, and she became his wife. So what we need to understand is that if we're really men and women, people who fear the Lord, we will have a certain degree of ecstasy associated with the commandments of the Lord. Now, as I've mentioned, the devil tries to tell us that being obedient to the Lord is something that is not delightful. In fact, it's to the contrary. It's very much a drudgery. Remember what the Bible says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3? The commands of the Lord are not burdensome. Allow me to paraphrase that, put it in today's language. The commandments of God are not a drag. They don't weigh us down. They don't cause burdens to come into our lives. What we need to understand is the word of the Lord, the commands of the Lord have been given to us to set us free. Isn't that what Jesus said? You are truly disciples of mine if you abide in my word, i.e. obey me. If you abide in word, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And the psalmist in Psalm 119, look at verse 32 of Psalm 119. I shall run the way of your commandments, for thou wilt enlarge my heart. There's a certain freedom which is involved in being a person who runs in the commandments of the Lord. When Moses was preparing the children of Israel to enter into the promised land, he preached a long sermon. Actually, it's the whole book of the book of Deuteronomy. It's a great book, by the way, found in the first five books of the Old Testament. In chapter 6... He says, now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgment which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you may do them. Now there's where I find difficulty. I don't know about you, but I have a much less difficult time understanding the commands of God than I do doing. I I have a tough time doing them sometimes. Do you ever run into that snag in your life? It reminds me of a preacher who overheard a man from his church Cussing. I know cursing is the right word, but he was cussing. And he rebuked the man. The man didn't know the preacher was there. And the man turned to him and he said, Oh, preacher, you know how it is. You pray a little and I cuss a little. And neither of us means much by it. You know, what he was saying about the preacher was, the preacher was good about declaring the word of the Lord. Declaring the word of the Lord. But he was not quite as good at keeping the word of the Lord. He was not practicing what he preached. But God would have us to not only understand, there's a tendency for us just to save ourselves on all this doctrine that's in the Word of God. And doctrine is very important. In fact, it's essential for right living. You've got to understand who God is before you can really apply what God asks you to apply. However, if we stop short of applying what God teaches us, then we have failed miserably. Listen again to what Moses said. He said, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments, which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land where you are going over to possess it. Now catch this, fathers, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments that it may go well with you in the land that you are going to, that you may keep them all the days of your life, not just casually, occasionally, but all the time. God calls us to this kind of commitment. 
hold your place here in Psalm 112, if you know where the book of Deuteronomy is, and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 30. You might be thinking, well, pastor, this matter of obeying the commandments of the Lord, greatly delighting in them, is an ominous task. It's beyond me. Well, that's not what the Bible says. And we can trust the Word of God when we do not trust our own sense of what is possible. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 11 and following. For this commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it? But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may observe it. Any command that the Lord gives to us as His children is achievable because God has put it in our hearts. He has written it in our hearts. Jeremiah 31 talks about it. Ezekiel 36 talks about it. How God has written His Word and His truth actually in our heart. Now let's go back to Psalm 112 and consider the characteristics of the God-fearing person. Because this really is a character sketch of the God-fearing man. The greatest compliment I suggest that could be passed on you as a man today is that you are a God-fearing man. Are you a God-fearer? Well, this text of Scripture will enlighten you as to whether you are, and then hopefully, if you're not there, none of us is there completely, obviously, but it will incite us as men to be God-fearing men. The first thing that emerges from this passage of Scripture is that God-fearers are righteous people. And righteousness is a natural outgrowth of fearing God. In Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13, the Bible says, In the fear of the Lord, there is hatred of evil. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. Paul echoes this in Romans chapter 12, where he says, Abhor that which is evil. The man or woman who fears God is a person who has an avid adherence to do the will of God, but also an equally avid abhorrence or detesting of that which is evil. Is it true in your life that you hate that which is evil? Particularly, now listen, particularly do you hate evil in your own life? This is one thing that we must understand, that part of fearing God is developing a healthy hatred For that which is evil, especially in our own lives, especially as that has to do with the way in which we relate to other people. Because this word which is translated righteous and righteousness throughout this passage of Scripture is a word which has to do with ethics or the way in which we relate to one another. How then does righteousness express itself in relationships? Well, first of all, through graciousness and compassion. Look at verse 4, the last part of verse 4. The God-fearing man is gracious and compassionate, and he is righteous. The word translated gracious is used only 13 times in the Old Testament. Eleven of the 13 times it's coupled with the word compassionate, which we read here in this passage of Scripture. The word gracious actually means merciful. It depicts the heartfelt response by someone who has something to give to someone who has a need. What is your response, men? What is your response when you see someone in need? 
Is it a response to draw conclusions about why that person is in need and to draw judgments associated with that? Or do you have an instant response of mercy toward that person? The God-fearing man is a man who is gracious in his understanding and response to other people. Now, the word which is translated compassionate suggests deep love usually prompted and directed to the helpless. It's used in Jeremiah chapter 21 verse 7 to describe the tenderness and the compassion that a nursing mother has toward her infant. That's tenderness, isn't it? What a beautiful picture of compassion. When you see a baby or some other helpless person, what is your response? Now, both of these words refer to mercy and love from a superior to an inferior. When you occupy a position of superiority, and I don't mean that in the negative sense of the word, but you have power which you can exercise over other people. And instead of exercising that power negatively in putting those people who are below you further down, do you use the power which God has given you as a gracious and compassionate person rather to lift people up? That is typical of the God-fearing person. The God-fearing person is a person who does not let any unwholesome talk come out of his mouth, but only what is helpful for building people up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. What is characteristic of your speech, men, as it relates to other people, especially to people who are under your authority? Are you a person who speaks words of encouragement to build them up? Or do you speak words of discouragement to tear them down? Are you a person who is given to rumor and gossip? Are you a tale-bearer? Are you a man who curses other people to their face or behind their backs? May I tell you, a God-fearing man expresses his grace and his compassion in the way in which he speaks to other people, in the way in which he treats other people, in the way in which he looks at other people. Another characteristic of This man's righteousness is that he is generous and lends freely. Look at verse 5, the first part. It is well with the man who is gracious and lends. And then look at verse 9, first line. He has given freely to the poor. There is a willingness in the God-fearing person's heart to lend to the poor. And by the way... This idea of lend is very closely associated with just outright giving. Do you know how God provided for the poor in the Old Testament system? You're familiar with it probably. What would he do? God said that when you would harvest your field, that you would leave the corners for the poor to come and to glean so that they would have something that they could have sustenance from. Remember what Jesus said when he was accused of squandering resources by Judas, no less. He said, the poor you will always have with you. You don't have me for all time, but you'll have the poor all the time. What do you think Jesus was getting at when he was saying, the poor you will, all have with, you will always have with you? Was that a statement of negativism, cynicism, defeatism? What was behind that statement? Well, I refer you to another statement that Jesus made. When he was talking about the great white throne judgment and the separation of the sheep from the goats, those being sheep going to spend eternity with God in heaven, the goats going out into eternal darkness and separation from God in what the Bible calls hell. Do you remember what he said that will be the thing that will distinguish the sheep from the goats? He said, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink of water. I was homeless 
and you took me in. I was sick, and you visited me. And then he goes on to say, when you've done it unto the least of one of these brothers of mine, you've done it unto me. So, men, if you're a God-fearing man, you'll be a man who is generous, a man who will lend freely, realizing that your ability to grant alone is a characteristic of the prosperity which God has given you. You'll recognize that God was the source or is the source of your wealth to begin with. Deuteronomy chapter 8, read it sometime and see if I'm not right. Are you actively giving to the poor? Well, may I encourage you to do so? Well, God-fearers are righteous. Are you a righteous man? Then you're a God-fearing man. But God-fearing men are also prosperous men. And don't misunderstand what I'm about to say, but at the same time, let us never underestimate what the Bible teaches. There are some who would say this is strictly on the spiritual level, but I would beg to differ with them, and I'm not a prosperity preacher. I don't believe in naming it and claiming it. I don't believe if you live a godly life that your life will necessarily have all the amenities which the world has to offer. I'm not suggesting that at all. However, I'm well aware of what the Bible teaches in both Testaments. And there is a certain level of prosperity that comes to a person, even on the material level, who is a person who abides by the truth of God's Word. It's up to us who experience the prosperity as to what we do with the prosperity. Now, let me make an observation. Prosperity in a God-fearing man's life does nothing to diminish the holiness of his life. Now, hear this. If you're a prosperous man because you're a God-fearing man, it will not affect the level of your holiness. If your holiness is being affected by your prosperity, then you're not a God-fearing man. Nor will it affect the humility of your heart. If you are a God-fearing man, you will always be a humble person. For any number of reasons. But probably foremost because you know the source of your prosperity. Your prosperity comes from the Lord. Now let's look at verses 2 and the first part of verse 3 to substantiate what I've just said. That God-fearing men are prosperous men. His descendants will be mighty on the earth. Dad, doesn't that really ring true in your heart? Is that something you want for your children? Do you want your children to be mighty? And the word which is translated mighty, by the way, is a word which is a military term. It was used to describe the champions of the wars of biblical times, the heroes. This word translated mighty depicts humanity at its most complete and capable level. Is that what you want for your sons and your daughters, men? Then be a God-fearing man yourself. His descendants will be mighty on earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. This word blessed is different from the word which is translated blessed in verse 1 where the Bible says how blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Actually, that word carries with it the idea of happiness. But this word translated blessed here carries with it the idea that the man who is a God-fearing man, his offspring will be prosperous, successful, Fertile, In other words, they'll have children of their own, and they will have longevity on the earth. That's the suggestion of this word. But why will God-fearing men have children who will be blessed? Proverbs fourteen twenty six. In the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence. His children will have a refuge. If I fear the Lord... As this passage of Scripture teaches the characteristics of a man who fears the Lord, my life will be like an umbrella of protection 
over my children's lives. The life that I live, a fearing God life, will have that kind of effect. George MacDonald, the great Scottish writer, said this, In my own childhood, my father was the refuge from all the ills of life, even sharp pain itself. Now, I had a father like that. I still do. He's nearing the end of his life. But I have had the privilege of living under the umbrella of a God-fearing man. Can you say that about your children? Can I say that about my children? And if we can't, don't you think it's time we did something about it, men? Don't you think it's time we repented of fearing man and doing what we want to do and started fearing God and greatly delighting in His commandments? Martin Luther, the great ramrod of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, Every morning when he would get alone with God for his personal quiet time, he didn't call it a quiet time, but he would spend hours alone with the Lord. And he would every morning he would work through the Ten Commandments. And then he would say them and he would meditate on them and see if he had violated any of those commandments since the previous morning when he had spent that time alone with the Lord. Let me ask you a question, men. Do you even know what the Ten Commandments are? Can you even say them? Much less meditate on them and live by them. And greatly delight in them. My suggestion to you this morning is you start doing that. And as you do that, what you will discover is you will find your heart delighting greatly in the commandments of the Lord. Because they will be liberating to your life. And the result will be you will have the beautiful experience of forming, as it were, an umbrella of protection upon your children. There will be material prosperity in addition to the social prosperity of the man who fears the Lord. His posterity will inherit his prosperity in the social realm, but to a degree even in the material realm. Hold your place here and turn to Psalm chapter 37. And we're going to look at verses 25 and 26. Psalm 37, verses 25 and 26. I have been young, and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous, there's that word again, forsaken, or his descendants, there's that word again, begging bread. All day long he is gracious, there's that word again, and lends, here again we see this word, and his descendants are a blessing. One of the things that I would hope for my children is not that they would just be blessed, I would have as a goal of my life as a father, and you should too, that my children would be a blessing. Isn't that true, men? Isn't that what we want for our sons and for our daughters? That they will be a blessing to other people? By all means, we do. Not just that they would be a receptacle of blessing, 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 but they would be a conduit of blessing to other people. That God would bless other people through them. That will happen if we are men who are men who fear the Lord. Look again at Psalm 112. I refer you once more to verse 9. Verse 9, the first line. He has given freely to the poor. Now, I don't know about you, but I really love the book of Proverbs. It's a fabulous book. In fact, it's my favorite Old Testament book. so fraught with wisdom. Just listen to a few things which are recorded in this regard, in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 19.17 says, He who is gracious to the poor man lends to the Lord, 
and he, referring to God, the Lord, he will repay him for his good deed. Now, I think God is always good on fulfilling his debts. Wouldn't you say so, men? So if I'm gracious to the poor man, what am I doing? I'm lending to the Lord. And the Lord returns what I've given and then some because he knows I'm a trustworthy man who will use the resources which he's made possible for me to have at my disposal to minister to other people. Proverbs 22, 9. He who is generous will be blessed. Why? For he shares his food with the poor. Some of his food with the poor. Do you share some of your food with the poor men? Do you have it as a habit of your life to minister to people who are less fortunate than you? And, by the way, we can always find someone who is less fortunate than we. When Mark Hatfield, the former United States senator from Oregon, went to see Mother Teresa in Calcutta, India, he said he witnessed something that puzzled him at first, and then when he heard her explanation of what she did, it just really diminished him and and really challenged him in his spiritual life. He said he saw how a cup of rice was given to a beggar and how that beggar, who had other mouths to feed in his family, took the cup of rice, dumped it out, divided it in half, and gave half of it to a fellow beggar. And Mark Hadfield asked Mother Teresa, we had more rice to give. Couldn't we have allowed that cup of rice to remain in that one family which was extremely needy? And she said, we could have. But what we know is, is that when people learn to share, God comes again and he blesses them. Back to what the Proverbs says. Proverbs 22, 9. What does it say? He who is generous will be blessed, for he shares some of his food with the poor. And then Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-seven says, He who gives the, to the poor will lack nothing. I like that. Why don't we start trying that? Giving to the poor will lack nothing according to the Word of God. Do we believe what God's Word says? Do we really believe it? That's what the Word of God says. But I would be remiss if I did not refer to the last part of that verse. But he who shuts his eyes, namely to the poor, will have many curses. So you see people, men particularly, our material prosperity grows out of our generosity primarily to the poor. We need to look to meet the needs of the poor. This man is prosperous spiritually too. Turn to Isaiah chapter 58, if you know where it is. If not, just listen. And once you find your place there in Isaiah chapter 58... Let me ask you to hold it and then look again at Psalm 112. Let's look at some statements which are made. Verse 4, the first part. Light arises in the darkness for the upright. Now, having read that, turn and look at Isaiah 58.10. And if you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light, amazingly, will rise in darkness and your gloom will become like midday. Try giving yourself away to people who are in need and see if that doesn't have a way of lifting the gloom in your life, lifting the sadness in your life. I love what Corrie ten Boom had to say in this regard. She said, if you're unhappy with your lot in life, build a service station on it. Start ministering to people in need. Serve people. And there will be spiritual blessing. Your light will rise, according to the Scripture, in the darkness, as in the noonday, as in the midday. 
Now go back to Psalm 112. And let's look at the last part of this psalm, verse 10. The wicked will see it, in other words, see the prosperity, the righteousness of this God-fearing man. The wicked will see it and be vexed. He will gnash his teeth and melt away. The word translated vexed means grieved and angry. And he'll gnash his teeth, meaning he can't do anything about it. And he'll melt away. The desire of the wicked will perish. But then look at the last line of verse 8. Until he looks, that is the man of God, the man who fears God, until he looks with satisfaction on his adversaries. This is true of the man of God, the person of God, man, woman, boy, girl, who fears God. There'll be people who will hate you. Jesus promised us that. They will persecute us because of our identification with him. However, in the final analysis, we will look upon our adversaries with victory. So, the God-fearing person is righteous. The God-fearing person is also prosperous. And the God-fearing person is courageous. Particularly like this. Our English word courage actually comes from the Greek, um, excuse me, the French word, which means heart. Have you begun to lose heart in your life? Well, if you will focus on God and seek to greatly delight in His commands, what you will discover is there will be a gradual restoring of heart to you. Spiritual courage will come to you. Look at verse 6, the first part. For he will never be shaken. And then verse 7. He will not fear evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. We live in a day, and obviously this psalmist did too, when there were many evil tidings. Don't we get a lot of evil messages? So why won't the God-fearing man or woman fear bad news? It's because he or she listens to another voice with a capital V. The book of Obadiah, that little one-chapter book, prophecy against the nation of Edom, begins by saying, we've heard the tidings of the Lord. Not the tidings of bad news, which the world gives, but the tidings of the Lord. Why was Obadiah victorious? It's because he listened to another voice. You remember when the children of Israel were going in or trying to get into the promised land, spies were sent out, the spies came back, ten of the twelve spies gave a negative report, but there were two men who did not give a negative report. Remember them? Joshua and Caleb. And the ten who were saying, we can't go in, said, we were like grasshoppers in comparison to the inhabitants of the land. They'll just eat our lunch if we go in. But the minority report, Caleb and Joshua said, wait a minute. God has told us this land is ours. We need not fear the inhabitants of the land. Let's go in instead. Are you a person who is plagued by fear in your life? Men, are you fearful? Then listen to the, the other voice. Listen to the voice of God. And trust in Him, because that's what is said here. His heart is steadfast, verse 7, the last line, trusting in the Lord. The word which is translated trust literally means to be unconcerned. Just to not have a care in the world. He takes bad news in stride because he knows God is in control. He has a sovereign God in whom he trusts. This idea of trust is the sense of well-being and security that grows out of having someone in whom to place confidence. Well, we have a big someone in whom to place confidence, namely the Lord. Think with me just a moment about the Apostle Peter. 
His story is written all over the pages of the New Testament. One of my favorite stories about Peter is found in the 12th chapter of the book of Acts. James, his friend, has just been beheaded. And Herod, the king, saw that it delighted the Jews so much that he decided to arrest Peter. And Peter was awaiting execution. And he was asleep the night that Herod was going to come and ask for him to have him beheaded. He was asleep between two guards. He had chains on each arm. And the Bible says that the angel of the Lord appeared in the cell where he was asleep. And the light was blinding. It was so bright. But it didn't wake Peter up. What was the problem with Peter? Well, there was no problem at all. Peter was a person who trusted in the Lord with all his heart. So he could sleep such a sound sleep, not because he'd had to take some drug to put him to sleep, drink alcohol to relax him so he could go to sleep. He knew that God had promised him a long time ago. In fact, Jesus, in the post-resurrection appearance of Jesus to the apostles on the Sea of Galilee, do you remember what he said to Peter? He said, Peter... You're going to be so old when your time comes that they're going to have to lead you to the place of execution. Peter was not an old man at this time, so he knew his time was not yet come. He listened to another voice. God had spoken to him through Jesus, and he listened to what the Lord Jesus had to say. You and I, men, we need to be men of the Word of God to hear the voice of God, to wake up with the voice of God on our mind, to go to sleep with the Word of God on our mind and on our heart. To meditate on His Word day and night so that we may be careful to do everything written in it. Then we will be prosperous and successful according to the Word of God. John Wesley, the human founder of the Methodist movement, came to the United States, was the colonies then. You probably were not aware of the fact that he came as a missionary to what we now know as Georgia. And his mission was to preach the gospel to the Indians there, the Native Americans. But the bad problem he had was he didn't know the gospel himself. He really wasn't saved. So he met with great failure. He left very dejected, got on the boat, going back to his homeland in England. And in the midst of that trip, a horrendous storm broke out. It was probably a hurricane. And it looked like they were all going to go down. But there was a group of Christians in that boat. They were known as Moravian Brethren. And they had such a peace about their lives. There was a calm in their lives. They had no fear of dying. And when he began to inquire as to why they had no fear, they shared the gospel with this man who had gone to preach the gospel to Native Americans in the colonies. He was a man who finally found peace in Jesus Christ, in trusting Christ, as the Moravian brethren had done, and as we have the possibility of doing In conclusion, let me remind you, those of you who are suffering with fear, lacking courage, what the Bible says in Psalm chapter 56, When I am afraid, I will trust in the Lord, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust. I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? Nothing. The call to us today, men, Fathers, is to be God-fearing men. May God raise up an incredible army of God-fearers in this church, remembering 
that the God-fearing person is the person who greatly delights in his commandments and loves to obey the Lord. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would help us as men to be God-fearers. That we would adhere to your will and hate that which is evil, Lord. Forgive me for not being as God-fearing as I should be. Put a fire in our hearts, God. Make us God-fearing men. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.